The Bible is a big book. For a church to teach through all of its stories in any meaningful way would take years. So what usually happens is certain stories and characters slip through the cracks. For those of us who have spent any amount of time in church, we probably know a good deal about Abraham, Moses, David, and Jonah. We certainly should know about Jesus. But there's a good chance we haven't heard much about Deborah, or Phoebe, or Mary, or Priscilla. So, in this series, we hope to rediscover the important and often untold stories of women in the Bible. We appreciate you listening. May these stories compel us all to contemplate the beautiful and sometimes overlooked diversity of God's people. We are more than half the church. So I believe that this is the last week of our Half the Church series. We've been looking at important and often untold stories of women in the Bible, and we've covered a lot of different terrain. Now, I would like to say that there's no way on earth that this series has been exhaustive. We have left a lot of stories on the table, um, even just thinking back through the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, important women in the Bible that we were not able to discuss. If we were to devote a week to every one that shows up in the pages of Scripture, we would be in this series for a long time. But tonight, I kind of want to circle the wagons and come to a teaching that is quite uh, provocative, to say the least, but more often than not, something that is um, painful and difficult for us as a 21st century American audience to hear. I'm gonna read two selections from uh, Paul's letters and you'll see kind of what I'm talking about as we get into it. I'll begin with 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and then we'll transition into 1 Timothy. This is 1 Corinthians 14, it says, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, it says, Therefore I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. The word of God for the people of God. I've included some other options in response to this today because as we sit here and we hear these, these passages that have been cherry-picked from the pages of Scripture, it became a realization to me, and my professor told me this at one point, whenever you have this responsatory uh, reading where it's the Word of God for the people of God and you guys passively have to sit there and say, thanks be to God, I've included some other options. Um, in response to these passages, uh, are you sure about that? Are, are, you, are you sure that, that, that this is what we're, we're getting here? No, thank you. Uh, I'll just pass on this. And these are actually very well-represented positions that people have. One is kind of tentative, saying like, I don't know how I feel about that. Another one is just moving into rejection of God's word. 
I just want to let that sit there for a second because immediately you guys are thinking that might be a negative thing. However, I just want to pause there for a moment. And maybe the third response is, what the whatever adjective of choice you like to throw in there at this point, because we as uh, this community that has celebrated the giftings of women in our community that have had multiple women up here holding this microphone and teaching us and exhorting us through God's word, these passages seem really, really strange to us. And I apologize for our immediate knee-jerk reaction to just be mindlessly saying thanks be to God without any sort of thoughtfulness uh, to this. I will say, hopefully at the end of this teaching, we will still be able to thank God for his word, but it's going to take some work on our part to understand how we're supposed to read it, what in the world Paul is trying to say, and how we can apply that in our 21st century American lives here And now, in 1984, cinematic history was made as young Daniel LaRusso, a punk kid from New Jersey, traveled from the East Coast to the West Coast to the little town of Reseda, California, where he was immediately bullied and became a student of the angry sensei, Mr. Miyagi who taught him how to defend himself in the hit dramatic film, The Karate Kid. (laughs) This is one of my favorite movies of all time, mainly because I had a huge crush on Elizabeth Shue back in the day. Um, But this this movie is important for, um, for us, at least in the way that I'm thinking this, because what happens is Mr. Miyagi, the way that he goes about training Daniel is through just doing normal chores. And throughout the film, you might think that he's just abusing this poor kid and getting him to wax the cars, to stay on the deck, to paint the house, until at the end, he unlocks all of these karate moves that can help him defeat the local bully, Johnny. Now, interesting side note, YouTube is is, um, putting out a show now that features Johnny, and he is becoming his own sensei in the new show on on YouTube, which I am very much anticipating its, its release. But here, for us, I think that all of our learning together, this is the tie, stay with me, it's kind of rough. All of our learning together and the way that we've been reading scripture together, it might be leading us to this moment where we see these texts in scripture and we do not know what to do with them, but I want to take us back to some of the things that we talk about all the time. We talk about ancient Near Eastern historical context when we're looking at the Old Testament. We talk about the first century Jewish context when we're thinking about the New Testament and how that is important for us and understanding the words on the page, not just to jump in and to take the text out of its context and immediately apply it to ourselves. There's work that we must do in order to understand what is going on here. One Old Testament scholar says this, and I think that it's, it's pertinent for our work here. It says, the Old Testament does communicate to us And it was written for us and for all humankind, but he goes on to say, it was not written to us. It was written to Israel. It is God's revelation of himself to Israel and secondarily through Israel to everyone else. Think about that and let that sink in deep for a moment. God's word written originally to a specific audience and then secondarily to us through their 
lens. This scholar goes on to say, consequently, when we read a text written in another language and addressed to another culture, we must translate the culture as well as the language if we hope to understand the text fully. There is a huge difference between the early church in the first century and us here and now in the 21st century American context. There's a huge difference between us on the Eastern shore and our friends across the bridge in Baltimore and DC and Philadelphia. There's a huge difference between us here and folks on the West Coast and how they accept and, uh, and interpret scripture. There's a background that comes to play whenever we read the Bible, but for us, it's important to go back as much as it is possible with us to the culture in which these letters were written to try to understand what Paul is saying. There's a work that's involved in reading the Bible, and I want to pause here for a moment because I don't want to paint this picture like you have to go to seminary in order to understand what the Bible is saying. I also don't want to say that you have to like have 19 books out in front of you in order to understand what the Bible is saying. There are moments in which you can just open up God's word and you can allow the spirit to teach you and to move through you and to lead you into life and godliness. However, there are also moments when it's dependent upon us to dig our heels in a bit and get our hands dirty and try to figure out what in the world is going on. And I would submit to you that 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2 might be at least a couple of those moments when we need to say, let's try to figure out what's going on here, even if it's just led by your own gut reaction to say, mm, I don't like how that sounds. Mm, that doesn't match up with my experience. Mm, I'd like to back up and think about this for a moment. If that's how we begin the process, then go for it. But let's allow ourselves to be moved by the Spirit as we're trying to understand what's going on. And along the way, we need to translate the culture of Paul's letters. You know it's intense when I'm wiping the sweat off my face when we're not even through the introduction. We have to translate the culture of Paul's letters in order to understand what it is that he is saying. So jumping right into this text, this is from 1 Corinthians. Paul says women should remain silent in the churches. And I can sense from some of your reactions that that doesn't sit well with you. Knowing this community as I do, there might be other people in this room where that seems absolutely fine to you because of your background and because of your experience with the church. Paul begins by saying women should remain silent in the churches, but there's a problem here just on the level of contradiction in Paul's own letters. One scholar says this, knowing what we know from our reading about the role of women in the early churches. And I think that at least from some of our series, we could pause here for a moment and say, knowing what we know about the things that we've seen over the last six weeks as we've explored these stories about women in the Bible, the untold and important stories, and we've seen how, for example, Jesus says, social norms be damned, Mary will sit at my feet and learn, even though this was not something that women were able to do in the first century. As Martha's in the back running around and, and worrying about what it looks like to be hospitable in this culture and making sure that Jesus has this uh, beautiful meal, he says, Martha, you, you've missed it. Mary understands what's important. Let's not take that from her. She needs to be here in this room with these men learning from me, growing, hearing, hearing me teach. And Jesus is, is kind of subverting the cultural and societal norms at the time. Paul also, going back to our series in Galatians, Paul says, through Jesus Christ, 
because of the work that he has done. There is no longer a need for people to be circumcised. There's no longer a need to observe food laws. There's no longer a need to observe the Sabbath because Jesus has done away with that in a sense. All of the cultural rights and customs that once initiated uh, you as a people, they no longer hold weight. All you must do is believe in Jesus. And he goes on to say, through Jesus, there is now therefore no slave or free, Jew or Greek. There is neither male and no female. Paul is kind of subverting these cultural classifications to say that through Jesus, we are all one, united together. Now, admittedly, that text has nothing to do with church ministry. That text has nothing to do with who should preach and who should not preach. But what Paul is doing is taking a, an established hierarchical structure in the first century and subverting it and saying it is not men first and women second through Christ. We are all one. Last week, we began to see what this looks like in practical terms where Paul is commending Phoebe to his uh, Roman Christian audience. Phoebe is the person that became entrusted with Paul's beautiful, theologically dense letter that has fundamentally transformed how people think about Jesus and salvation. And Paul gives it to Phoebe, who is his benefactor, who takes it to this community and delivers it to them. And in that role in the first century, she might have been the one who read it out loud. She might have been the one who answered questions on it. She might have been the one who schooled everyone in the room what Paul was talking about because she was there when he was writing it and he was teaching her what it was saying and he trusted her to do that work. We get that from a couple verses in chapter uh, 16 of Paul's letters uh, to Romans. We also see that Paul is, is praising Priscilla and Aquila because they were the ones that were teaching people. There's a text in Acts 19 that talks about um, this individual who knew his letters. It said he was learned in the, the ways of, of the gospel. Let me read it to you because I think it's worth saying. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and her husband, probably Aquila, heard him. They invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. It's really interesting in this text that the way that Paul introduces this couple is Priscilla and Aquila. He's fronting the woman in this dynamic couple, this teaching couple, and the implication is Priscilla knows her stuff. This guy who was learned in all of the scriptures, he was teaching about who Jesus was. But when Priscilla and her husband Aquila heard this, they said, bro, you need to come over here. We have some things that we want to tell you. Let us teach you a more adequate way. And all the women in the house said, yeah, Good grief. Come on. Kayla's on board, but the rest of you, I don't know. This is important because we see Paul saying Priscilla has done her work. In that same text in Romans chapter 16, he also says something about Junia. She is an apostle of apostles. She is like the super apostle, if you will. Paul is not afraid to dole out acclaim and accolades to women. 
Yet when we see this passage in Corinthians where Paul says women should be silent, there's a problem here. Because if the same guy's writing these letters and in one context he's saying, listen, Priscilla, she's a bad mamma jamma when it comes to teaching. And, and Junia, she's an apostle of the apostles. She's a super apostle. And Phoebe, yeah, I gave her my letter and she went and she, she taught some fools in what it means to, uh, to receive salvation. And Paul is, is kind of instructing folks, remember, because through Jesus, it's no longer male and female. It is one in Jesus. So Scott McKnight says, knowing what we know from our reading about the role of women in the early churches, we are surprised that Paul would say women should remain silent in the churches. Paul himself gives instructions on women prophesying in churches in the same letter of Corinthians. So we looked at this passage in Corinthians chapter 14, three chapters earlier in Corinthians 11, Paul is saying what it looks like for the women in the community to speak in the midst of their services of worship. Do you know what I'm saying? Here he says, women should be silent. But three chapters earlier, he says, listen, let me give you some rules about what it looks like when the women stand up to say something. It doesn't make sense. This is also the same guy that has laid out all of these texts, praising these women of God for doing the work. N.T. Wright says, what the passage cannot possibly mean, and N.T. Wright's British, so just take everything I'm saying, put it in your best, really smart, 65-year-old British accent, okay? What the passage cannot possibly mean is that women had no part in leading public worship, speaking out loud as they did so, because Paul himself gives instructions for what it looks like when the women do that. Do you understand what I'm saying? It doesn't make sense. So this text must be leading us to a specific kind of silencing. Some people have gotten uh, into, obviously, uh, conversations about what this looks like. Ooh. Out of breath. Mm. So they've, they've posited some ideas about what kind of silencing this might be. They've said things like that women should not be evaluating the prophecies that take place in corporate worship. Or that women should not be speaking in tongues or interpreting tongues. And I just want to leave that off to the side. We got enough on our plates today, guys. So we're just going to take that and put it over there for now. But it seems like the best thing that we can say about this specific kind of silencing comes from the text itself. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says, if they want to inquire about something. These women seem to be talking in the service. And what Paul is saying, listen, you guys need to be quiet while it's happening, but if you want to inquire about something, you should ask your husband at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Now I know that we have some progressive, independent women in the house tonight, and I know, I know, well, where were you 10 minutes ago when I needed you? And I know that even this explanation does not sit well with you. you think, Ask my husband. I'll take care of my own business. Thank you. I can read. I went to school. I don't need him to teach me things. Settle down. 
settle down for a moment because whatever you think about this in a first century Jewish context, that sounds great to me. And in America, yeah, that's, that's part of the deal. Lots of women are going to school and asserting themselves and they're really smart. We'll get to that in a second. But in the first century, the, the educational system was not tailored for women to know the same amount and the same things as men. Even saying that, it sounds terrible. But understand that in the first century, this was, this was a different way of, of going about things. The men inherently had more opportunities afforded to them than the women did. And what Paul is saying is if you want to inquire about something, you should ask your husband at home. So this specific kind of silencing has to do probably with being respectful in public worship. Now, some people have posited that it might look something similar to this. It's still a house church sort of scenario, but you have a separation of men and women. And it might be the case that some of the teaching, because it was over the heads of the women, not at an intellectual level, just because they didn't have the same background and experience and education as the men, that they would have become bored and they would have started talking to one another. And it may have been the case where the person who was instructing people might have to quiet the crowd a bit to regain order within the service and then instruct the women to talk to their husbands later because they had more background and experience. This is not a, an issue of intellectual capacities. This is a matter of afforded opportunities. And what Paul is saying is you guys have to be respectful in public worship. And we see how that plays out in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which leads us into 1 Corinthians 14, where he says, be quiet in churches because it's disrespectful. If you have questions, talk to your husbands later. There's another sort of silencing here that some people have, have posited from this text, mainly that Paul is more concerned with women speaking out of turn and speaking uh, before they understand things. So it wasn't just a matter of keeping the peace in a public service. It wasn't a matter of just um, making sure that order was happening. It was also a matter of if you are learned if you have uh, an understanding about the conversations that are happening in the community, then by all means, speak. This is why he gives instructions on how it looks in the community to do this. But here what he seems to be saying is there must be a learning before speaking that takes place in the community. This is a picture of Barbara Brown Taylor. In 2014, she was voted one of 100 most influential people uh, from Time Magazine. She is notorious for her preaching. Uh, she's one of the best preachers in America. She's very scholarly. She's now a professor. She's an ordained Episcopalian priest. I listened to a sermon from her uh, a week or so ago. It was awesome. Loved what she had to say. Would gladly sit under her teaching, if that was still her ministry. This is another scholar, another Episcopalian, uh, Fleming Rutledge. And you might hear me say things like, she's an Episcopalian because some faith communities do not afford opportunities for women to speak. But here we have Fleming Rutledge, who is a scholar in her own right. She wrote this book called The Crucifixion. It's going to be one of the main texts that I'm using for our uh, talk on the atonement. It's 600 or so pages. It's beautifully written. She's very smart, very sharp, also a great preacher. We see her influence and her, um, her, her skill and her intellect on full display as she is breaking down, in this work at least, what Jesus' death has to do with us. And then even in my own school uh, career, there have been women that have poured into me as a person 
And to say that they do not know enough is laughable. These women have devoted their entire lives to studying the word of God and to say that they have nothing to teach me because I have different parts than they do is insane. So other people have, have spoken in this way. There's, there's a difference between the culture of the first century and the 21st century, where if Paul is really after uh, something to the effect of learning, he says, we must pay special attention. Excuse me, this is Scott McKnight saying, we must pay special attention to the fact that women today are not uneducated. They have opportunities that men do. They can sit and they can go to the best seminaries, sit with the best professors, become some of the best professors understanding God's word to a degree that some of us are not able or have not yet attained. He says we must pay special attention to the fact that women today are not uneducated as they were in the first century. But he says some male pastors today are. Woo! 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 I know he didn't say that, but he did. There's this, there's this, um, this give and take here where we, we want to privilege certain things, but we don't even see them played out in our own faith communities at times. He goes on to say, this passage testifies to the importance of education, of knowing the Bible and theology and having pastoral gifts and skills. And once those basics are met, Scott McKnight says, anyone with gifts should be encouraged to use their gifts. Are you with me? Some of you might not be. And I am okay with that because we are all on this journey. I don't expect you to have a life of background and experience and reading the Bible and to have all that undid in 10 minutes of me jumping around and sweating all over the place and showing you some pictures of smart women. I hope that that's not enough to dismantle all of the argumentation that you've heard your entire life. But at least in this passage... Paul is not saying women should be silent in the church because Paul himself gives instructions for what it looks like, praises and privileges the women in his life that have played a role and can give acclaim to the women who know what they're talking about. So if 1 Corinthians 14 is the peg that we're hanging our hat on, it might not be the best peg. But then Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. I'm looking at the clock, guys. That wasn't supposed to take that long. But here we are. Susie, every week of this sermon series has said, you know, I mean, I enjoy what's happening, but I just don't really, I didn't really think that's what it was going to be. Susie, is this what you thought it was going to be? A little different. Okay, so we're getting into 1 Timothy 2. Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Translating the content of Paul's letters, I don't want to go back into it, but Paul seems to be the type of person that is at least saying women have done a lot in the history of the church. They have a voice. They have a role. Some of them have been leaders. He talks about Phoebe and commending her as a deacon. He's, he's listing these women who are super apostles. He's listing these women who have taught other men and have done so beautifully, who have done so with skill and much love and pomp and circumstance. So we're translating the, co the content of Paul's letters. Just this on its own doesn't seem to sit with what Paul is saying. Now, I do want to say this just for a second and leave it there. 
There's debate as to whether or not Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 14 and certainly 1 Timothy. We're not gonna talk about that tonight. And either way, it's not really that important because it's in the canon, it's in our Bible. So somebody, somewhere, even if it's not Paul said, these books, these letters are important for this community to understand what God wants from us, okay? So we have to translate the content of Paul's letters, but we also have to translate the culture of Paul's letters. And when he's talking in 1 Timothy, I am gonna go a bit fast here just to respect your time and how out of shape I am. But when Paul is writing this letter to 1 Timothy, or writing a letter of 1 Timothy, it's being sent to Ephesus. This is important. Ephesus is a cultural hub of, of this time, and Ephesus has been inundated by uh, what is known as the Artemis cult. The Artemis cult is, according to N.T. Wright, it's the main religion in Ephesus. It's got the biggest temple, the most famous shrine, and it was an all-female cult, meaning priests were all women. They had completely subverted the hierarchy of the day. It wasn't men on top and women below. This was women ruled the roost. The Artemis cult is in the background of Timothy as Paul is writing to this faith community, understanding about this Artemis cult. Other scholars have said that part of their worship was the elimination of normal sexual relations. And these women, they despised marriage and childbearing and child rearing. This is important as we get into what Paul is saying here in this passage. But understand that the background of what's happening in this text is there's something going on in this community that Paul is wanting to address. The book of 1 Timothy has to do with bad teaching that is infiltrating in the church. And Paul is attempting to protect these people from bad doctrine. But he also sees, perhaps, in the back burner, this Artemis cult and what it is doing to gender roles at the time and what it is doing to the women in the community. There's also a bit of culture in, in Paul's letters where a gender and sexual revolution was observable in many of the major cities of the Roman Empire, so says Scott McKnight. And what you see is immodesty, sexually provocative uh, dress, extravagance in, in fashion, for lack of a better word. You also see women who are asserting themselves in public addresses and teaching. In other words, they see what people are doing. And in a situation like this, they might come up and steal the mic and say, sit down, dude, we've got something to say. Exerting their authority in ways that were not appropriate in a faith community. And for Paul, these are all under the surface as he is writing this letter to Timothy. In Ephesus, because of the Artemis cult and the effects of this uh, gender and sexual revolution that was taking place at this time. So when Paul ch chimes in and says, I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing, he's also trying to undo a cultural stereotype where men should not be angry, they should be praising, they should be praying. They should not be disputing with one another. But then he launches into the stuff that, that really puts us on edge in our 21st century American context. And he says, I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. In other words, I do not want these women to be like the people of the Artemis cult. I do not want these Christians to be like the new Roman women 
who in their sexual and um, gender-based revolutions are subverting what is good and right, I want these people instead to be clothed with good deeds that are appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Now, I have to say this while we're here, because at least in my experience and probably in yours, this text has been used in youth groups to make women feel terrible for wearing tank tops and shorts and bathing suits. This has been a text that has been used to blame women for the abuse that they have faced and men to get off scot-free because we're all perverts and gross and you guys should know better. This has been a text that has been used to make you feel less than women and for men to feel like we're just part of the system. That is not, has not, will not be good enough for the people of God. What Paul is saying here is, yes, I want women to dress modestly, but let's not insert what we deem to be modest into this discussion. Men, if you have a problem with lust, deal with it. Women, if you are dressing to entice men, which is real, deal with it. But let's not assert our own ideas of what this means and enforce it upon other people. That's not what Paul is talking about here. So if you've been a person that has been subjugated to teaching like that in the past on behalf of Jesus's church, I apologize to you. We must do better than that. So Paul here is saying in its context, there's an inundation within the people. Don't be like that. Do not be like that culture because we are called to be different. We are called to be known by our good We are called to be known uh, as people who are appropriate in our worship of God. And man, that goes for us too, gentlemen. We also should be known for our good deeds. We also should be known for our appropriateness within worship. And I hope that we can move beyond these sad stereotypes that have infiltrated the church for many of our formative years. Women, if you have heard that you are gross and you have heard that you are shameful and you have heard that the things that you have done have been um, messed up because of the outcomes uh, that we have seen in men. I'm sorry. Men, it is time for us to be better, to live differently, to strive for holiness and to respect our sisters in Christ. Paul continues, and he says, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. The key thing here is a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Again, Paul is seeming to push this agenda that women should be people who are learning what's going on here. It's not just a matter of silencing women in the faith community. He says a woman should, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. He goes on to say, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. And again, if you have in the background here, The Artemis cult, which is an all-female-led priesthood, when Paul is writing a letter to a community in that same town, with that same sort of structure going on, he might want to be very careful in how he's addressing the women by empowering them, but not saying, go and be like them, where you steal the microphone from any man that has something to say, and you take over the priesthood, and we subvert the, uh, the gender hierarchy where now women are on top and men are 
underneath. That is not what Paul is attempting to say. N.T. Wright, in fact, says, Another way to translate or interpret verse 12 is, I don't mean to imply that I'm now setting up women as the new authority over men in the same way that men previously held authority over women. That's not what is at stake here. But what is at stake here is that women should have the same opportunities that men do to learn about Jesus and to learn about scripture. And then whatever their calling and their gifting is to use that in the local church. Woo, that's, that's beautiful stuff. If this is what, in fact, what Paul is saying, he's not restricting women. He's actually allowing them opportunities to learn and grow and to live into their gifting and their calling. Then he goes into some really weird stuff about creation, which I will not be able to do justice in two minutes, but we should hear it. He says, for Adam was formed first and then Eve and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. There's all sorts of different uh, interpretive ideas as to what is going on here, but it, it seems like it might be the case that if Paul is saying women should learn Women should be able to study and to see what Jesus is all about, to see what scripture is actually saying. He can look back to a story in which Eve was not, for lack of a better term, educated, because at least in that text, her bum husband didn't tell her what was going on, because when she talks to the serpent, she has her facts mixed up, which most people would say is, Adam did not do his job in instructing his wife what was at stake. It's at least worth considering here that this is what Paul is saying. Then he continues and concludes, but women will be saved through childbearing. Every commentary on my shelf says, hey, this is one of the most difficult passages in the entire New Testament. Thanks. That's very helpful. I'm glad that you guys are getting paid to write these books. That's great. That doesn't help me preach, but thank you for that. But what, women will be saved through childbearing. It seems to me, and guys, I'll be honest with you, do not take this as gospel truth. It just seems to me, though, that if we do have the Artemis cult in the background of this text, and we do have this sexual revolution where... Um, even the idea of, of sexual relationships and childbearing and childrearing were kind of put on the back burner and women were attempting to assert their, uh, their dominance. It might be the case that Paul needs to step in and say, there's nothing wrong with families. There's nothing wrong with procreating and having children. There's nothing wrong with going about living this out in the way that it's at least possible. So he's saying it's important for women to learn, to learn quiet, quietly. That doesn't mean that they have no um, opportunities to speak, but it's, it's, a, it's a mindset that people bring to the table and commentators would say every person who is sitting at the feet of any teacher should attempt to learn with the same sort of posture. One who is open to instruction and being submitted not to the teacher, but to God, to the gospel. Anyone who is a student of the word and a student of Jesus should be open to, to, to instruction submitting to what Jesus is doing in our lives and leading us in a certain way. In conclusion, there's a potential influence of women in the church that I think has gone untapped in most of American church structures, particularly on the Eastern Shore. 
I think that there are background and experiences that we bring to the table where we are unwilling to allow ourselves to move in that direction. And I think it's time that we start walking in that direction. There are women even in this space tonight that have not just a talent, not just an intellectual capability, but have a gifting, a God-given gifting and calling to lead his people to be part of a movement where we can reach folks and not just reach folks in evangelism, but where we can shepherd people well. There are moments in my ministry when I'm sitting across the table from people and I'm thinking I'm completely out of my league here. If only Laura was with me, then I'd know what to do. If only Christy was with me, then I know what to say. If only Susie was with me, then I could say a funny joke at this time. But I am completely outmatched, not intellectually, but just in this moment where it's like, I don't know what to say. There are moments, let's be clear, when I am outmatched intellectually, okay? Just those, those weren't the particular experiences that I was concerned with. I've got no problem saying, yeah, that's a good point. I'm an idiot. I have no idea. It's these other moments where I don't know if I can fill that need and there's other people in my life, women, who can. But one of the things that I've felt in the course of my ministry is having to empower young women because everyone else in your past has not empowered you. And the baggage that you bring to the table is, I can't do that because I'm not allowed to do that. I at least tonight want to open up the door and say, maybe that's not true. Maybe it's worth a second look. Maybe it's worth some more prayer and leading and guiding, and maybe it's worth you being open to a call of God that you have not allowed yourself to experience because you have not felt freedom to say yes. Gentlemen, that goes for you too. We are adept at writing ourselves out of the story, but in this space, what I see is not half of the room that's able to fulfill a call. What I see in this space is immense potential for God to use people to lead his church in a beautiful show of unity and God-given gifting and calling. I want to end with this. TRP lives and dies with the idea of theological diversity. And I've been up here singing and dancing and sweating like a maniac. And there's people in the seats that do not buy what I'm saying. To which I say, we want you. We need you. We are so excited that you feel safe to be a part of this community. Reading the Bible is difficult stuff. This is why denominations exist, because people read the Bible differently, and maybe you and I read the Bible differently on this issue. But I do not want that to break fellowship with us in this community, because as we've said since day one, the thing that we rally around is the cross and the empty tomb, and that is good enough for me. I'm hopeful that it is also good enough for you. We have spent a lot of time talking about the Bible, how to read it, to dig our heels in, to think, to pray through these ideas. I'm hopeful that something like this tonight can also be something that we dig our heels in, that we think and we pray through. And I'm hopeful that something like this does not move us farther away from one another, but it's something that brings us even closer to serving Jesus together because TRP, we have work to do. 
And I hope that we are all on board in whatever that looks like. So if that's conversations that you have tomorrow with your coworkers, if that's conversations that you have tonight, if that's a text message that you send before we have communion, so be it. We have work to do. Our community needs to hear about Jesus and our community needs to hear that they are accepted and loved and welcomed in here for this time, for this purpose, to serve Jesus. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for the way that it challenges us, the way that it um, helps us to pause and to reconsider the conclusions that we have reached. God, I know that at times it seems like we're doing a lot of work on our end here and now to... um, to unpack scripture. May these people leave understanding that your spirit is enough to guide them. May these people leave understanding that you are at work in their lives, that they do not need seminary degrees, that they do not need 19 different sources open on the table, that they do not need all of the intellectual abilities that they might not currently possess. Help them to know that at the core of this faith is following Jesus with everything that we have. Your word says that if we love you with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and if we love our neighbors, that is what you are looking for. May that be the thing that guides us. But God, if there are people in this space tonight that have said no to a calling on their life that they did not feel fit to say yes to, break down the walls. If there are people in this space tonight that have said no on behalf of someone else, maybe begin to break down that wall as well. In the midst of this space, would you unify us? Would you direct us? Would you uh, move us through your spirit into the way that you would have us to go? May we be empowered, encouraged, challenged, convicted. God, you are good. Help us to see that. Help us to be a part of that. Help us to use whatever gifts and abilities that we have to bring about your kingdom here and now. We pray these things all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of TRP's podcast. The Restoration Project is a church affiliated with a cooperative Baptist fellowship located in Salisbury, Maryland. If you're in the area, we invite you to join us for one of our weekly services on Sundays at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, we believe that there is room for you here. For more information, please visit our website at www.restoresby.org. And for past teachings, feel free to check out our SoundCloud page at www.soundcloud.com slash restoresby. Or to make it easier, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. We hope to see you soon.